if someone's violating the law, we want law enforcement to be able to catch them. But what we've seen from data, at least one national report found that SWAT raids recover weapons or drugs less than half of the time. So it's showing that these justifications are not actually frequently a valid justification and that our heavy use of them is not actually meaningfully increasing public safety when we look at the outcomes from these raids. That is Jeremiah Mosteller. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform. We're going to be looking at the use and maybe the abuse of no-knock warrants and no-knock raids. This podcast was recorded on January 14th, 2021. And as I mentioned earlier, our guest is Jeremiah Mosteller, who's been on the podcast a few times before. Now, in the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision. You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. And before we get to the interview, let's talk about what those terms mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. Each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different specific areas of focus we try to impact. And we call these priority initiatives, and we sometimes abbreviate them to PI or PIs. Now, the vision itself is very ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built upon four mutually reinforcing principles, which we also discuss in the podcast. These principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles also in the show notes. Now let's talk about the use and abuse of no-knock warrants in the United States. Jeremiah, looking at uh, looking at my life as it sits right now, I am a a well known libertarian in my town and on social media. There's never been a, a time when I've shied away from from uh, talking about my principles and about uh, you know the distrust that I have of central planning. Um, and there's also in my background uh, the fact that I have weapons training you know i was <laughs> i was an armed nuclear security officer for quite a long time and that involved learning how to shoot uh, a3 rifles and and glocks and so i've got all kinds of that uh, in my background and if i if i'm if i'm honest i look at this this latest thing about uh duncan limp and this is a direct quote from an article the county released an official report yesterday stating that the no-knock raid was justified due to Lemp being anti-government 
and currently in possession of body armor, and he also had uh, been viewed handling and shooting firearms. <laughs> and so I look at that and I said, if there is ever a reason to search my house, are they coming in hot or are they just going to knock on the door? They've got, according to this, the justification to do a no-knock raid on my house, and that that worries me. Should I be worried? I think so, Duane. I think we have seen a drastic increase in the use of what is called no-knock raids over the past few decades. And in a lot of instances, they're being used in, in times when they're not justified. And we can talk more about that and, and what the justifications are beyond this particular case. And I, we were concerned about them, and we want to see that this tool continues, but that it's used in reasonable circumstances. Well, let's, let's talk about what it is before we go any farther. When we, when we say no-knock raid, let's make sure that we're all on the same page what exactly do we mean by a no-knock raid? Yeah, so I think to first start, I'll talk about what a traditional warrant is. I think that's important to start with what the Constitution requires. So standard procedure is under the Fourth Amendment, requires law enforcement to secure a warrant whenever they're going to complete a search or arrest someone. When they execute that warrant, the Supreme Court has consistently ruled that ordinary circumstances require them to announce their presence and give the occupants a reasonable time to open the door before they begin a search or break into the person's home. Do they define it, what they mean by reasonable time? It depends on the circumstances. Uh, this is a very amorphous standard. Sometimes it's 30 seconds, sometimes it's six minutes. It really just depends on the crime in question, the circumstances on the ground, whether someone is viewed as a risk or danger to the officers or the public. So it really just depends on the circumstances of the case, and that's why they use a reasonable standard, which is not very helpful for us on the outside, but is how they've decided to manage this process. Okay, I'm sorry. I interrupted, but I was curious. No. Uh, so this standard procedure, the one under the Fourth Amendment, doesn't always occur, and the phrase we've been using is no-knock raids, but that phrase actually entails about three different circumstances or exceptions to that standard procedure. The first is going to be the most rigorous, and it is actually when police have a no-knock warrant. They go to a judge, they receive a special warrant from that judge that allows them to enter the building without announcing their presence. Typically, judges only issue these when there's one of two situations. When there's proof that there's danger to officers before they even arrive on the scene, or that it's likely if they announce themselves that there's going to be a significant destruction of evidence by the suspect or someone else present on the property. So that's the first time, first kind. Second situation is police have secured a traditional warrant, but when they arrive on the scene, they make the decision as the officers to not announce themselves because the facts on the ground actually raise concerns about knocking and announcing that that would actually be dangerous, futile, or destructive to the purposes of the investigation. So the Supreme Court has given them what is called the exigent circumstances exception to the Fourth Amendment, which is different because they don't have to prove that at the beginning. It's actually less problematic because it's actually based on facts on the ground at that moment in time. And then the third situation, uh, which is actually has nothing to do with the, a warrant, it's actually what is colloquially called a quick knock raid. So in this, in this circumstance, police secure a traditional warrant 
they they arrive on the scene to serve that warrant but they actually knock announce their presence and break down the door in one swift motion without allowing the occupants to have an opportunity to open the door courts have frequently found this to be insufficient to fulfill the fourth amendment with some minor exceptions but largely this practice has not been challenged very frequently by citizens so let's go back and let's let's walk through the there's been a lot of talk about no-knock raids, and, and what you'll see in the news is you'll see when they go bad. And l- very often, as with things in the news, you see, you see the bad news. You don't see how often they're done. So let's talk about a bit uh, about how often these are used and, and why. What's the most often situation where they're going to be used? Yeah, so we do not have exact figures on this, but we do know based on some data that it's estimated that the use of no-knock and quick-knock raids have increased from about 1,500 times a year in the 1980s to somewhere around 60 to 70,000 annually today. Uh, This aligns with the trend that we've seen also in the increase in use of SWAT teams generally, which have went up about 1,400% between 1980 and today. Uh, We don't have a lot of data either on that because only the state of Utah requires reporting on either SWAT team use or no-knock warrants. But both of these trends are actually very interesting if you put them in context of some other changes. So both of those trends have increased even though there's been a downward trend of about 50% in violent crime nationwide since the 1990s. So the use of these is going up. Well, the instances of violent crime are going down. Some might say that the correlation is the causation. So, so we do not have any research on that exact uh, point. But when you actually look at the justifications that you just asked about, that actually shows us that they're not necessarily being targeted to, towards people that are being charged or convicted of violent crimes. So we see, as I mentioned earlier, two of the reasons that are frequently given are officer safety or destruction of evidence. Uh, increasingly, the second is the one that they're relying on, and that's why, why you'll see a lot of the conversations around this issue are around drug raids. And in a lot of instances, they're getting this because they don't want the, the drugs to be destroyed before they're able to raid the house, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We, do, we want if someone's violating the law, we want law enforcement to be able to catch them. But what we've seen from data, at least one national report found that SWAT raids recover weapons or drugs less than half of the time. So it's showing that these justifications are not actually frequently a valid justification and that our heavy use of them is not actually meaningfully increasing public safety when we look at the outcomes from these raids. In in his book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. I'm not sure if you read read the book, uh, Radley yes. Balcode. Have you read it? Yes. Okay. I, I enjoyed it. I just devoured it. Uh, I want to go back and read it again. There are a few that have covered this issue as well as, as uh, Radley Balco has. And in his book, there were two points that he made that I thought if you had the, you know, the opportunity to talk to Jeremiah, bring him up. Uh, so, so the reason they say that they want to avoid the destruction of, of uh, evidence and they want to protect the the officers. I understand that. When you look at some of these no-knock raids, Radley, he asks the, the question, if you're looking to protect the officers, why is it then that you would 
would do a violent raid in the middle of the night, wouldn't that be more likely to increase the likelihood of a, a, a response in kind, a response with violence, rather than wait until you see the person on the street and you can just pick him up right there? How do how do you answer that? Doesn't it make more sense, or is that is that a situation that we should just say we have to trust them? Well, Dwayne, I think just thinking back to a recent story in our country with the Breonna Taylor situation, that's a clear example of where law enforcement went in in the middle of the night, and the occupants of the home were disoriented. If someone breaks into your home in the middle of the night in America at least middle America, most people have a weapon. And I think it's reasonable that most people are going to respond to shoot at the officers. And so if we know that that's the context in our country, and we know that people breaking down a door with no announcing of being law enforcement, most people are not gonna wanna shoot if they know it's law enforcement. But in these instances, people don't know that. They just think that someone violent is coming through their door in the middle of the night. And so I think there's a way that we can rework this, rework the way this system actually works to actually help improve officer safety by doing them during the day, doing them when people are less likely to be disoriented, less likely to think that it is someone who's coming into their home to harm them. And so I think that's one reason why the, you bring up the night raids. That's one reason why they're so concerning is that there's just so much room for misunderstanding, danger, and firefights at that point of the day. Another thing that's concerning, and you brought this up, is the increase of use of, of the SWAT teams. And the, the, Balco talks about the, the history of SWAT and how it went from, from being a, a team created in L.A. under Daryl Gates that, was, that would, its primary mission was to handle situations like hostage situations where there was, there was just a situation that your normal beat cop couldn't handle and so you had to bring in special weapons and tactics to save people who were being held hostage if there were situations like that today SWAT teams are being used more routinely to serve search warrants and Mm -hmm. and so you get these these dynamic raids uh where what, what blew my mind is very often you have SWAT teams that are made up of people who kind of just moonlight as a SWAT SWAT team officer and they find themselves actually doing training while serving these search warrants. They're, they're not actually spending a lot of time doing training. They, they do on-the-job training while doing a no-knock uh, raid and I find that just staggering. Yeah, we've really shifted from a culture where a few large departments had SWAT teams to a culture where almost every single department has a SWAT team. But as you noted, in smaller departments, those officers are not doing that full time. This is not LA, this is not New York, where your full time job is to be specialized in these dangerous situations. In most small rural areas, these are people that are moonlighting, like you said, in these roles. So they don't have the same level of training, the same level of expertise as some of the forces do in these larger cities. He also brought up the the idea that it's no big deal if they destroy the if you're search, doing a search warrant for drugs and they destroy the evidence, that's still kind of a win. And I can understand that perspective, but I also understand the perspective of not wanting evidence destroyed. What where do where do we stand on that? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a valid concern that if someone has violated the law we believe they should be held accountable and if a way for them to prevent that accountability is by destroying evidence we do not want them to do that 
But again, back to the example about breaking in at night, there there's definitely ways that we can do this more safely, that we can ensure that we're doing this in a more proportional way. I think that's another thing is uh, if the individual is not dangerous and our concern is destruction of evidence, then we can still surprise them by issuing a warrant and allowing the normal procedure and bring in normal officers, not these highly militarized or paramilitary teams like SWAT teams that are gonna issue a no-knock warrant. There are other ways to do this in a safer way and still ensure that law enforcement is able to solve crime. Have there, there have been cities and states that have done away with, with uh, no-knock warrants completely. What have been the results in those areas? Have we seen an increase in, in violence to officer? Have we seen increased uh, officer injury and death? Have there been an increase in, in the destruction of evidence? Yeah, so there's st- we're still waiting on some data, but I can tell you there are two states that previously had barred their judges and magistrates from issuing no-knock warrants, and that's Oregon and Florida. We saw no difference there uh, between their reductions in crime rates. We saw no spikes, whether it be property crime, violent crime, or drug crime. They continued to follow the downward trend in crime rates that we saw in other places. I think it's still a big question because we saw a lot of cities this year, like Louisville, Memphis, Houston, Indianapolis, adopt similar procedures. So I think time will tell what happens in those cities, but the experience from these other two states that have been doing this for years seems to be that we're not gonna see a spike in crime and law enforcement is still gonna be able to do their job. I think one of the most effective things we can do in messaging on this, and this is just my opinion, of course, uh, feel free to challenge it however you want, but we'll we'll often hear <laughs> this, this very, very often a black and white situation where you either you either want to let the no-knock warrants go forward or you want to see dead cops. I hate saying it like that, but that's how often when I say we should get rid of these or we should not be using these, I will get the response, well, what do you want to see? You want to see cops get hurt? Because we do this so the cops don't get hurt. And I, I, I say, no, you know what? I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I just, I, I don't. I don't want to see people getting killed or injured or anything. And I think that raiding someone's house at three o'clock in the morning is a good way for somebody to get hurt. But mm-hmm. there are alternatives that still protect the police. That, that still, you can do this in a way that still protects the police. And I think that's that's key, is understanding that there are ways to do this that, that are as effective or more effective in limiting the possibility of injury to either the person that they're trying to arrest or the officers conducting the, the uh, search warrant. Yeah, Duane, and I think you bring up a good point, and I want to make that very clear to listeners today that ideally we believe every warrant should be executed in compliance with the Fourth Amendment, with law enforcement announcing their presence and allowing the person to voluntarily open the door for them to come in. But the realities of the job of law enforcement are a lot more complicated than that. They're a lot more complicated than the confines of the Constitution, and they don't always allow law enforcement to adhere to those strict standards. So we actually think that there must be some flexibility based on the circumstances of each case, that there are certain instances where a no-knock raid will actually allow law enforcement to use less force and actually could reduce the likelihood that either officer or community member will be harmed. And so we do think there are limited exceptions where these should be used, such as when a violent crime is in progress 
or when there's actual credible evidence that the location poses a significant threat to the officer's safety or another person's safety. So I want to make that very clear. This isn't a this isn't a yes or no question. This question can be a how do we reform this, not how do we end it or how do we keep it. Yeah, and the uh, the guidelines have to be they can't they can't be nebulous, can they? They can't be uh, so much open to interpretation. It has to be uh, very clear. Mm-hmm. When we think about this this uh, policy of allowing there the opportunity or access to a no knock warrant under strict circumstances, strict guidelines, how do we see that as being a a way to greater protect equal rights versus what's going on now? Well, uh, we have some research that has come out in the past few years that clearly shows that the use of no-knock warrants and the use of SWAT teams clearly is disproportionately impacting certain communities. These are being used more heavily on certain communities, regardless of crime rates, regardless of any other factors that we can control for in these studies. They're being disproportionately used against black and Latino individuals. And if we look even, if we we talked about drug use earlier, drug use rates between black, white, and Latino individuals are equal, but we're seeing the impact so much more on certain communities. And so I think this is something we have to think about. We can't just look and assume that the way the policies are written, that they do not impact different communities in a different way. We have to actually look at the outcomes sometimes of the policies and the way they're written. And it's clear from research that there is a disproportionate use against certain communities of these types of practices. And there are ways to rework these practices to ensure that we're using these on the individuals that are dangerous, regardless of who they are, where they live, or the color of their skin. Is there any kind of research out there that shows why these are being used? I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I'm just wondering, is this, is this the go-to or is this the exception to the rule? When there's a warrant that's served, uh, is it generally, specifically, is it, it, does it deal more with drug crime? And if so, is it generally a no-knock warrant that goes towards uh, a drug crime? So, so it depends on the circumstance, the state, the jurisdiction. As you know, policing is inherently local, so it's hard for me to, to give a uniform answer here. But we do see, as I mentioned earlier, increasing use of no-knock warrants for simple drug raids where there is no other justification based on officer or community member safety. And so we do see them continuing to skew that way, and we believe it's because law enforcement thinks that this is a more effective tool but we don't actually have proof as i mentioned earlier half of the raids result in no drugs or no guns being found on the property and so uh, we're not exactly sure why law enforcement is doing this or, or what the purpose is but it seems to be that they believe this is a more effective tactic even though the outcome data doesn't seem to prove that in the end we look to create mutual benefit wherever we can and mutual benefit is one of our our four mutually reinforcing principles Help me understand how taking the position from where it is now to where we would like to see it increases mutual benefit, not only between the officers keeping them safe, but the suspects keeping them safe and society as a whole. 
Yeah, well, I will go ahead and I'll just reiterate, policing is local. So we believe that each community should make the decision on how exactly they want to change these practices. Uh, some communities could decide they want to ban it like they did in Louisville or other cities could decide that they want to stop the use for drug raids or over the night. But ultimately the goal we believe that both advocates and those in law enforcement should be considering is how to ensure the most safety and the less, least harm on officers and individuals alike. And as you and I mentioned, for example, the use of these raids in the middle of the night does not reduce that. It does not reduce the harm against those individuals. It actually increases the harm because of you may actually knock on the wrong address, as we've seen happen in many instances where law enforcement, it was dark, so they couldn't see the house number, but they thought it was the right apartment or they thought it was the right home, so they're just going to break into that home. The result in some of those instances has been that individuals have died because law enforcement have felt that they needed to use their arm, their weapons, and maybe they were justified to use those weapons based on that circumstance at that point in time. But ultimately, we really want to see law enforcement work with their communities to craft the practices that work best for them, that work best in their context based on crime rates, based on the types of criminal organizations that are in those communities, and based on what is best for community members and law enforcement. And we think that they can work together to figure that out to ensure that there is the most safety for both groups, because inherently law enforcement is part of the community. So if we're one and the same, we need to be working to protect us all the same. There's an old saying that says if, if uh, all you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. But what, what's interesting is, is that by, by limiting the use of the no-knock warrant, the, the no-knock raid, you actually can foster innovation. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's yeah. a, a bit counterintuitive by saying closing off this option. Um, well, maybe it's not counterintuitive. Maybe I'm just thinking out loud and shouldn't be. But you will actually increase innovation by limiting access so that you won't just have a hammer and you won't see every problem as a nail, but you'll have a, an entire toolbox of options to go through that will increase. And that leads us to openness where we talk about innovation. And that's that was my thinking of how this policy relates to openness. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Wayne, I think you hit the nail on the head there with innovation. Uh-huh. I see what you did I there. You, I, I just think you did because I mean, you brought a situation you brought up earlier of why would we use a no-knock raid to break into someone's home rather than arrest them when they're out on the street? And I think that's a good question. And I think we actually have heard stories where law enforcement, instead of arresting someone when they're in their car or when they're walking down the street, they've waited until that individual is at home to then execute a warrant to arrest them. And it shows that we're actually inhibiting the ability for law enforcement to think about what is the best way to deal with these problems by saying, here is your hammer, now use it whenever you choose to. And what we should be saying is, here is your hammer, we'll allow you to use it when it's justified, but there's this list of other ways that you can actually deal with this problem. You should think about those first because they're safer and they're actually going to be more aligned with the principles of our local community. How about self-actualization? How does this this switch in policy, this this change, help people, help society uh, self-actualize? Well, I think that taking away this hammer makes us think more about crime and how we want to respond to crime and how to most effectively deal with crime. 
because if we're not using the the blunt tools of no-knock warrants and even prisons as frequently, we, we're going to be seeking out ways to be better as society to deal with crime and actually deal with the root causes of crime instead of just using these blunt instruments to try and hide crime from the public and try and push people away from the community. We're actually going to try and find ways to keep people in the community to safely deal with the root causes of their crime. I think that gets into our larger POV on criminal justice that I know you and I have talked about many times. Mm -hmm. What do you say to folks who, upon hearing everything we've talked about, we're about 25, 26 minutes into this podcast, who listen to it all and then come back and say, Jeremiah, I've heard what you have to say, but my biggest concern is still allowing access to the hammer will result in that hammer being abused. So why not just take the hammer out of the toolbox completely? Well, I think it goes back to a point that I made earlier that sometimes the use of this hammer can actually result in less harm to officers, to community members, to everyone involved. And so by taking away, back to the innovation thing, by taking away a tool completely, we actually limit it in instances where it could actually reduce the likelihood of someone being harmed. And a great example of thinking about this would be when law enforcement maybe believe one person in a building is dangerous and is actually actively engaged in crime, a violent crime. Law enforcement could use this tool to stop that person and actually protect more people. But if they were to announce themselves in that instance, the individual inside this dangerous could actually harm the others in that property. And so I think it's it's trying to not impose a one-size-fits-all mold on law enforcement, allow them to still have the tool, but just clarify, give them clear guidance right now so they know when is appropriate to use that tool. Because in a lot of instances, they don't know what's appropriate because the policies Supreme Court precedent are not clear enough to help equip them to do their job in the best way. Is there anything that we haven't talked about already that we need to know regarding no-knock raids? Yeah, I think uh, the only thing I would just add as well um, is just make it very explicitly clear that we're a little hesitant on any type of federal or state legislation that puts a blanket ban on this restriction. Again, just to reaffirm that we think that it's local community's decision to make and that these reasonable restrictions we're going to place on this practice should align with the spirit and text of the Fourth Amendment. Our founders believed that warrants were vitally important to protecting the liberties of American citizens. And so we just want to make sure that the way we're enacting our criminal justice policies align with that vision. Thanks again to Jeremiah for joining the podcast to talk about no-knock warrants and no-knock raids. If you have any questions about this part of the criminal justice reform priority initiative or any of the other PIs we've talked about before, please send those questions to me at toppriority at afphq.org. And if you haven't taken the opportunity to leave a review of the podcast, please consider doing that on whatever service you're using right now. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.